Hey, good morning. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, today we will be in Haggai, which is between Zephaniah and Zechariah. So if you're in the Z's, just go towards the middle and you will find Haggai. And we will be there for the next four weeks. Uh, I will pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. I pray that we would uh, look to your word, uh, what you said yourself, Jesus, that testified about you, that is the prophets, uh, that we would see you in the prophets, that we would see your gospel in the prophets, that we'd see your omnipresence and omnipotence and ultimately your omnicompetence here in the book of Haggai, that it would guide us, that it would lead us, that it would direct us, that it would correct us and that we would love you more having looked at your word in this way. Please, Jesus, help us. Uh, we love you, Lord, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so we're in Haggai. We'll start in verse 1. Uh, it's a very fascinating uh, book. Uh, the craziest 15 weeks of 520 B.C. Uh, here in Haggai. We will go ahead and dig in. Uh, one of the reasons we're even in this book... Um, I think it's really unfortunate that we don't get around our Bibles enough, and one of my hopes is that we as, as God's people uh, would feel comfortable in our text and in our Bibles and opening up to a book like Haggai and seeing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ there. Uh, we are people who believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead to save sinners from sin uh, to God, and that that God said that the whole of the Old Testament was about him. Uh, so as a church, we don't make any bones about it. We believe this is about Jesus. This is Christian literature. This belongs to the church, all of the Old Testament. And when you get to a book like Haggai, uh, I've never preached a sermon or a sermon series on Haggai before. In fact, I, I'm not, I don't recall hearing about a sermon or a sermon series on Haggai. Uh, there are not a ton of commentaries on Haggai uh, because it sits in these 12 books, the book of the 12, which are the 12 minor prophets. And in our English Bible, Daniel gets kind of inserted in there along with them. Uh, but these books of the prophets, and it does just sort of sit here. It's 38 verses that sits in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. When was the last time you read Zephaniah? Also a great book. So here we are in Haggai. Uh, I'll just read verse 1, and we'll just begin to unpack it and kind of walk through it. My, my hope is that not only when we're done here that you'd be more comfortable with Haggai, but you'd also be more comfortable seeing Jesus in all of the minor prophets, and you'd be more comfortable with your Old Testament. So here we go, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, uh, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, also known as August 29th, 520 B.C., because we can actually pinpoint that that is the day that this happened because they give us such great information. So you can also read there uh, August 29th. Uh, the word of the Lord. That When you see in your Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, this is the proper name of God. This is Yahweh. This is God using his proper name. Uh, in, the na in the word of the Lord came the hand of Haggai, the guy that the book is written, uh, the, that contains his stuff, the prophet to some fun names like Zerubbabel, the son of Shetael, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of uh, Jezadok, the high priest. Okay, this one verse might seem kind of boring, and I promise it isn't, and I'll tell you why. One of the things we need to do when we come to an Old Testament book, we need to ask, what is going on here in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and where the heck am I? So Haggai, who the book is about, gets this mention here in these 38 verses. Uh, he gets two mentions in Ezra, and that's it. That's, that's all we hear about him. Uh, in fact, 
it seems that the original audience probably would have been so familiar with Haggai that he can just say, Haggai the prophet, and everybody says, yeah, I know who Haggai the prophet is. He's Haggai the prophet. He runs around doing the prophet stuff. But what's also important is to remember is that Haggai the prophet's not really what's important. It's that, it, that this is a word from the Lord. This is a word from Yahweh. This is a word from the God of the Bible. And this word Lord is very important. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible, which kind of sounds like sneezing, uh, the, the authors always use the word kurios, which just means Lord. But it's really important there because by the time we get to the New Testament, the New Testament authors are so clear to use this name and apply it to Jesus. Uh, it gets so clear that when you get into the first writings, these writings called the Apostolic Fathers, who are not actual apostles, but the guys who the apostles discipled, they go so far when you read their text, they use the word Lord only to refer to Jesus. And they use another word, uh, which is kind of where we get the English word despot to refer, or master, to refer to God the Father. So they want us, as, as the early church, when we read a book like this, when we see this stuff, to remember that Jesus is the God we are talking about. We're Trinitarian, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But that when we look at this, when you look and see what God is up to, remember you're looking to see what Jesus is like. Um, because this is an interesting text. It doesn't have, uh, it's not an easy cherry pick. This isn't uh, Isaiah 9. Like this is not Christmas card, Old Testament stuff where there's this easy look Here's this foretelling of Jesus, but Jesus yet says this applies to him. And here it is in the story, in the second year of King Darius, like I said, August 29th. So where is this in history? God made everything good. Human beings broke it. And he called a people, starting with Abraham, to be his special people on planet Earth, uh, to be his covenant people, and they unfortunately do what, what our hearts are, are inclined to do, and they rebel against God. Now, God knew this would happen. He didn't have a plan B in the person of Jesus, but Jesus ultimately comes to save them and through them to save us. We're called Gentiles in the Bible. We're the people who are not part of that special family originally, but are welcomed in by Jesus. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he raises to save us. And here Haggai is in between this Persian rule, books like Daniel happen in this time, where there's been an exile and everyone's returned and they've returned with a job. But things aren't so well. The, the Persian king has sent the people of God to return to the land to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the land and they go out to do it. And honestly, it never quite comes back together the way they really expect it to. And really all of that and sort of the grand disappointment that comes in there continues as we look in our Bibles to point to there must be something more and that something more is Jesus. So here we are in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is an extremely God-centered book. There are 38 verses. The proper name of God appears 34 times in the 38 verses. Amazing. 34 times in 38 verses. Now again, remember, when we see Yahweh, we, don't, we remember our Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jude 5 says that Jesus is the one that saved the people out of Egypt, so we can apply Jesus here, no problem, because that's what the Bible invites us to do. These people say, in the, time, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now here's where it gets interesting, right? Like We're not going to read this, and our response is that we need to go build a temple or the temple. In fact, we know Jesus is the temple, and we as the church are the temple, and this time and place as God is choosing to relate to people. But So what do we do with this, then? 
Why don't we just skip it and do something else? You know, 1 John's really nice. It's a nice book. I, I think we need to also be willing to see ourselves here and our need for Jesus in all of these things. He goes on. So they're saying, they've been sent back, and they're saying, you know what, it's not time to work on the temple. It's not time to do the ministry. It's not time to do the things that God has called us to do. Well, why not? Why isn't it the time to do those things? It says this. These people say the time's not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. So remember, Haggai is just the mailman here. This is God's word. Is it a... Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the house lies in ruin? So y'all are willing to reside your house, but you're not willing to get to work working on the temple. Now again, we don't have a temple, but, but I think this is very important for us in 2016. We are a people who love comfort as Americans in 2016. You know, I would go and do that sacrificial thing for the Lord Jesus Christ, but... Yeah, it's Washington, and it's like 74 degrees out, and that is a little too warm for me. If I could get a little cloud cover, then maybe, perhaps, then I will go and help and serve in that way. Or, conversely, we say, well, I know Jesus really, you know, I know that would be, a, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to, that would be a good thing to do, but you know, it's so rainy here so long, and I can only go to the beach so many times every year. Uh, I will lead the Bible study. I will serve my neighbor in August or September or October or November when the rain actually comes. Here's their problem. They have a heart problem. We have heart problems. It's, it's not in, for us here and now who are the temple of the Lord. It's not about, hey, get on the building project, necessarily. Uh, it, it's not about, hey, get in a ministry, necessarily. It's not, hey, do this thing. It, it's looking here that these people are making excuses why they should not do the will of the Lord. They have good reasons why they shouldn't do the things that Jesus is calling them to. They have good reasons why they shouldn't have that conversation with that family member that they know needs to happen. They have good reasons to explain why they shouldn't make the sacrifice now. They can make the sacrifice later. And when the bank account's a little bigger, then they can send the money for the mission trip or the thing. There's always a reason. There's always a reason to wait to serve Jesus. And whenever we have that reason, we actually miss a huge reality. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The God of heaven came to earth to die for us so that we can live. Now, just like these people, these people were redeemed out of exile to go home. They weren't redeemed out of exile to go. I mean, the, the thing that brought these people to the place they were at in Persia, again, where are we in the story, was this grand exile that happens at the hand of the Babylonians who are a really pretty bloodthirsty people. The Babylonians fall to Persia. The Persians take over. Uh, by God's grace and mercy, uh, people like Daniel and others find favor in the eyes of these pagan kings who don't love God, but they say, hey, go back. And so these people are set free from captivity to go and serve God. You and I as Christians are set free from the captivity of our sin to serve God. 
to love Jesus, to enjoy Jesus with everything we have. And then suddenly we realize this, all of a sudden, this book Haggai doesn't seem so distant. Because just like we sang, you know, bind my heart, it's prone to wander. I'm prone to seek after that comfort. I'm prone to get after something other than the gospel. I'm prone to get after something other than the will of God. And we need to be careful. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't Jesus died for you, so you should live for him. It's the pronouncement. Jesus died for you, now you get to be free to live for him. You're free. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's for freedom we get to live. These people got to go home to be free. And the ultimate expression of that freedom is found in the worship of God and knowing God for who he is, who we know has ultimately been revealed so clearly to us now, here and now, in the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't even have that. They, they were still talking about building a physical temple. We get Jesus who is there. We get to be now in this time and place, at this point and juncture in the story, we get to be the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and we have this occasion and this opportunity to love Jesus and love people in this freedom. I'll keep going. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the house, this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, or, or put your heart on your, on your ways or your path. He's calling them to stop and be sober-minded and be thoughtful. What a gift we have while we still have breath in our lungs to stop and ask, am I living the life that Jesus has for me? Am I enjoying, enjoy, I'm going to use the word enjoy, enjoying the sacrifices that Jesus has put before me in his service? Am I living, as Romans 12 calls us, to be a living sacrifice? Am I living my whole life in the response to this good news of God who died in my place for my sins so I can live? He set you free for freedom. Are you living in it? Are, are we stuck in our own sin? Are you serving Jesus out of obligation? You know, I'm going to get up and I'm going to read my Bible because, again, hands on the hips, because Jesus died for me and I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to. I'm going to get up and I'm going to get in God's Word. I'm going to get in there every day because I want to hear from the God who set me free. Am I going to love and serve the church? Because I want to be with the people of God who God has set free and we can come together as many members in one body and serve Him in the freedom and the joy of being His people. Am I going to do those things because I've been set free? Am I going to ignore them because I'm just bound in, in unrepentant sin or, or I'm, I'm bound in sort of the sin of right things, wrong reasons, obligation? He's calling these people to live in the way that he's called them to be. Consider your ways. Listen, this is important. It's all important, but this is very important. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, God's going to sort of do some things with this reality and change some things. But he's saying, okay, so you, you eat, but you're never full. 
You drink, but you're never not thirsty. You work, uh, I mean, it's very Ecclesiastes, sort of. It's all kind of dust in the wind. Uh, everything under the sun, uh, you, you can try and fill the emptiness in your life with money or power or success or internet friends or whatever thing you can put in there, right? Whatever you can do to fill the void. But as long as you're trying to fill the void that the Lord Jesus Christ is meant to fill, everything just sucks down like a black hole, like a wallet that you just put your money in and it just falls through like a bag with holes. You work really hard and it's never enough because we're not satisfied in those things. We're, we're not satisfied. And sometimes, you know, you hear the anecdotal story. You know, this guy made a bazillion dollars and he gave, you know, 99% of the bazillion dollars away and he bought an island and now he's satisfied and he's content. Well, maybe money wasn't his thing. He just happened to have a bazillion dollars. Maybe his thing was the praise of man so that he can spend the rest of his life people going, yay, you're awesome for giving away 99% of a bazillion dollars. Yeah. And that's the thing that they live off of. Whatever it is, it doesn't make us full. We don't find our satisfaction here. In fact, as we consider our ways, we're to have a God-first life. That is where our satisfaction is. That is where we are to be. Uh, that is where we are to focus. Uh, go with me to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 35. We're seeking after a God-centered life. I'll start in 29 for... Con no, 35 is fine. Uh, 32. No, 35. There we go. And rising very early, we're talking about Jesus here. Now, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So here's our context. Jesus has sort of hit the scene. He's showed up. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's in a town. And people are saying, we've got more people to heal. We've got more stuff here in this town that needs to be done. And while his healing ministry is a very important thing, and I think it's a very important sign for what God is doing in the world, he is ultimately... Uh, you know, you can think about why are the miracles the way they are. He walks on water. He calms storms. He set, casts out demons. He heals people. He feeds people. Uh, he does all of these different things. But why? Why, do you, why does he do these things? If he has all this power, why doesn't he do something that makes everybody, makes Pontius Pilate and Herod and the soldiers and everybody say, oh, no, he really is the son of God. Why doesn't he do fireworks out of his fingertips? Why doesn't he, you know, why doesn't he do something else? He's putting things back the way they're supposed to be. It's a foretaste of what he's ultimately doing with all things. He's feeding people because they're not supposed to be hungry. He's casting out demons because Satan's not supposed to be at work in this world in the way it's. He's doing these things for God's glory and restoring things as a foretaste of how he's going to restore everything in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 20 and following, 21 and following. And so they're saying, hey, there's, there's more stuff that needs to be done. And Jesus goes off and he prays and he goes on the course correct, or not course correct for him, but he, you know, he, he sinks up with the Father and he, and he I, I think you could argue that Jesus is considering what's next. He's considering his ways too. The perfect God-man without sin is not considering sin or something that needs to, to change there, but, but what, what does the Father have for him in that moment? And what does he say? I have to go to the other towns and I have to preach. 
That's why I came. I came to people to tell people the kingdom has come. I came to tell people about the forgiveness of sins. He came to point to the reality of his life, his death, and his resurrection that was coming. Now, if he had just stayed in this town and healed people, the story's sort of incomplete. That wasn't God's plan. Again, Jesus is plan A, not plan B. That would be a weird plan B that, of course, Jesus doesn't do because he's Jesus and he always follows the will of the Father. If he followed plan B and not gone to the cross, where would we be? We wouldn't be here. He followed plan A. He, he stayed on course. These people in Haggai were sent with a course. And I don't think their course is completely incidental. I don't think the, the fact that they were sent to build the temple doesn't matter to us at all, even though it's not... Uh, here in the way that God is relating to human beings in 2016 is by calling people through Christ to be the church filled with the spirit. That, that, that's the deal for us. We are the temple now. So it's not, but it's not that this is completely inconsequential, but, but if we just focused only on the temple, we'll miss, I think, what this actually has for us. Let's keep going. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says it again. So these are people he's pointing to and saying, you're being satisfied with, you're trying to be satisfied with stuff, and I gave y'all a job to do. I sent you home. I set you free with a job to do. And you're busy dealing with houses, right? It's 2016. It's easy. There are 10,000 shades of green or blue that you could paint, paint your house. Powder, it's not even powder blue and sky blue. It's, you know, it's like whatever, zebra blue or whatever the heck they call. Whoever sits around naming these paint colors to come up with fluffy cloud cottony blue or whatever we, we get out of the deal. And you know what? I'll tell you what. Jesus cares about your house. Jesus cares about your paint job. Jesus cares about what you had for breakfast this morning. Jesus cares about what you'll have for dinner. Why do I know that? Jesus points to it, right? He points to creation. He says, you know, consider the birds, consider the lilies. Uh, has not the Father taken care of them? Will he not take care of you more also? We have these civilian affairs we must deal with as Christian people, right? We have stuff we have to deal with. And, and it's not that we're not living holy, right lives when we're not just reading our Bible, right? Like, we're not monks. God has actually created us to do real life. God cares about cotton candy blue and the, the color you chose to paint your house but it needs to be in its right place in the priorities of our lives. Right? If our life becomes about the paint color, you know, at that point in time, we, we begin to lose sight of things. If that comes about how we rearrange our house one more time, if it becomes about how we reorder uh, whatever, it, well, you know, I've had this car for two years, I need a new, whatever it can be, some other thing can take this prominence in this place that Jesus is supposed to belong. Paint your house. Enjoy your house. Jesus gave it to you as a gift for you to enjoy and glorify him and be thankful for it. Be thankful more than anything that, you know, it's painted and the wind's not blowing through your house. Thank you, Lord. And even if it was, be thankful. At least we got a roof. And if we didn't have a roof, at least we have each other, right? Like There, there are different Christians all around the world who don't have the, the luxuries that we have. And God does not is not disregarded them, and we are not more loved than they are, just to be clear on not having a health and wealth message. But their priorities are messed up, is the problem with Haggai. Their priorities are totally messed up. So here we go. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The same exact wording, uh, both in English and in Greek and in Hebrew here, uh, as we saw in verse 5. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
Do the thing I told you to do in the first place. You can do good things, by the way. Like take your house. Like love people. But if they're not the things that Jesus actually wants you to do, especially if you know what he wants you to do, do the things that Jesus wants you to do. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? We're 20, it's 2060 days. We love that quite. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? I just don't know what God wants me to do. Well, I'll tell you what I know he wants you to do. If you're a Christian, he wants you to love other Christians, specifically those members of the church that you belong to. If you uh, have friends, he wants you to love your friends. If you have neighbors, which you do, he wants you to love your neighbors. If you have kids, he wants you to love your kids. If you have a spouse, he wants you to love your spouse. He wants you to love these people. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to glorify him. We can get so busy on the particulars. What am I going to be doing in 2015? I don't know. And neither do you. God does. He's omnicompetent. He's got it handled. Worry a little bit about today. I just don't know what Jesus wants me to do. How's your Bible reading? Are you reading your Bible? Well, I, I read it once in 1977. I, you know, I get back to it maybe someday or whatever. Are you loving your neighbor? Well, no, but I'm thinking about 2025. 20, well, how about you just start by reading your Bible and loving your neighbor? Let's, let's start with what we know God wants us to do. These people know that he sent them there to do it. The job was to build the temple. They show up, they start working on the panels in their house, painting them cotton candy blue, and they say, oh, I got to really reupholster my couch. You know, Tuesday's bad for me. Um, what does next week look like for rebuilding the temple? No, stop, now, go, do. I'll repent of that sin when it's more convenient. I'll, I'll work on my problems. I'll work on that, that sin I have. Uh, when it's a little more, i got a lot going on right now. No, stop. I'll get right with Jesus. Classic, right? You always hear people say that Constantine was the first Christian emperor. He didn't drop a divine pagan title forever, 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 until he died, and doesn't get baptized until he's on his deathbed. He waited too long. Today is the day we love Jesus. Today is the day we turn to God. Today is the day we repent and believe. Today is the day we do the things. Today is the day we let our hearts be course corrected. Today is the day we do the things that God has called us to do. If you know that you've got something God's calling you to do and you're not doing it, today is the day, not tomorrow, not next Tuesday, and not when it's more convenient. That doesn't mean we're not the good farmer, as we're told in 2 Timothy. Sometimes, you know, things take time. Some things are one step after the other. Some things are, maybe you feel that God's calling you to a particular kind of ministry, but maybe today's not the day. Maybe you don't have the training you need. Maybe, maybe it's coming, but there's steps you need to take today to go there. You're saying, well, you know, I really want to, I'd love to be able to disciple, uh, I'm a lady, and I'd love to be able to disciple young women and help them follow the Lord, but I don't know how. Well, maybe you don't start by, like, gathering up 12 gals and trying to start discipling them. Maybe you just find somebody else who can start walking with you, and they can disciple you, and then you can disciple them. Maybe you, it's taking the step in the, the right direction. That's what they do. Go get the, you got to, we got to build the house. We need some lumber. We need some lumberjack. Go cut down some wood. We call them loggers here in Washington, by the way, but lumberjack sounds rhetorically better. Go get some loggers. Go get some spikes and some chainsaws and go cut down some wood and bring it on down here. We've got work to do. And why? That I may take pleasure in it. I may be glorified, says the Lord. God, sometimes we miss this, 
Not only has God forgiven you for your sins, but he set you free to serve him, and he is pleased by the service you do for him. He is pleased when you serve him and walk in his ways and live for his glory. He likes it. Now, let's be very clear. Just like these people, they're not doing that so they will be God's people, right? They are God's people, and that's why he's talking to them about it. They don't do those things. They're not going to build the temple so they will become God's people. They will go build the temple because they are God's people, and they've been given a mission by Jesus. Okay, so we don't do things to please God so that he will be pleased and love us and save us. We do the things that we know that God likes us to do because Jesus Christ has loved us and saved us and set us free. You looked for much. It kind of goes poorly for them, by the way, in verse 9. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Ooh. Blew it away? But they worked so hard. What do you mean you blew it away? Why? He answers it for us. Good. Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house. Now remember, this is what he called them to do. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I have called a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on the ground that brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. This is a course correct. This is a course correct for them. Fine. You want to be so distracted? I will take away the distraction. You want to focus on that instead of me? I will remove that distraction from you and... The, the problem with us is 2016ers. Teeners? 2016ies? We feel entitled to things. Jesus Christ is the king of the universe and rightly entitled to everything. What does that mean? Have my house? Have my house? Have my car? Have my car. It's yours. It belongs to you, anyways. And, and I think one of the things that we can miss. And I think this is really helpful when, when we, this is really, really helpful, kind of, again, kind of coming back to the Ecclesiastes structure. The, the good die young, and, and, and these people who are greedy and selfish and objectify people live long lives with piles of money. And we look in the world and we say, that isn't fair. And then you hear your mother's voice say, well, life isn't. But Jesus is equitable, and things will be evened out in the end. Um, but I think we remember the words of Romans. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Okay? God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. People are given what they have in God's forbearance and his grace and his mercy, especially speaking specifically of non-Christians here, and if you're non-Christian, this is, this is you. You have breath in your lungs and money in your wallet because God is being kind to you so that you repent. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. You're, you're meant to say, oh, I have breath in my lungs. I am taken care of. God has been gracious to me. I am still alive. I'm going to turn from my sin. And I'm going to turn to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. And anything that God does, I will, I will say this, and I think this is what he's doing here, and anything that God does to lead us to repentance is kindness. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance, and anything God does to lead us to repentance is kindness. 
anything God does to ultimately draw him to, to draw us to himself is grace and mercy and kindness to us. Sometimes it takes being on the other side of that to even see it. Sometimes it takes the other side of everything going sideways to stop and say, wow, if it hadn't gone sideways, I wouldn't have become a Christian. You know, if it hadn't gone sideways, I wouldn't have repented of that sin. If it hadn't gone sideways, I would have remembered my hands are empty and that I need the Lord Jesus Christ for all things. His kindness is meant to lead to repentance and anything he does to lead us to repentance is kindness. He's not just omnipotent and he's not just omnipresent. He is fully present, fully sovereign, fully able, fully king, but as we'll see in these 38 verses, he's fully competent. And he knows what he's doing as he's orchestrating all these things. He knows what he's doing when it says that all things are working together for good for those who love him. That doesn't mean that our life becomes a scramble and he thinks, oh man, you really screwed that one up. What am I going to do this time? His omnicompetence has us. It has you and it has me. He knows what he's doing to the ends of the earth to lead us to a place where we live with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. He's omnicompetent with these people and he's omnicompetent with you. For these people, they had to have it blown away. They were finding their satisfaction in material goods. They were finding their satisfaction in food. They were finding their satisfaction in money and the grace and mercy of, in the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes it away from them. Because anyone who's turned from sin to Jesus will tell you, you know, I need way more than money is Jesus. You know, I need way more than blah, 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 blah is Jesus. That's what I need. Because it turns out when I have him, I have everything. It's a course correct. Go with me to Ezekiel 14. This is the mighty course correct. This is his concern for us. So here's the scene, Ezekiel 14. Um, the people of God are running around worshiping pretend gods. They are enjoying uh, sort of the things that come along with the worship of these pretend gods and this licentious living, a life that's really apart from what God has. Now, Trouble is a brewing. Big, big, big army trouble, and all of a sudden they realize they're going to get crushed. All of a sudden they realize all this doing things the way the world does it, well, now I'm in serious trouble and I need some actual help, so I'm actually going to dial up God. We need God now. So verse 14 says this, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me, that's Ezekiel, and sat before me, and the word of the Lord, there it is again, came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set them as a stumbling block for their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say, Thus says the Lord God, anyone of the house of Israel who takes idols into his heart and sets a stumbling block for his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes to the multitude of his idols." that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. What does that mean? They come to him full of idols and idolatry and living in the world's way, and they say, but God, there's this really scary thing that's about to happen. we got these armies coming, and we're in big, 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 big trouble. And he says, I don't care about the armies. I care about you. I care about your heart. I care about the fact that you're far from me. I care about the fact that you're estranged from me. I care about the fact that you're distant from me. 
That is what we're here to talk about. That is what we are doing. But, 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 but the armies, the armies, the armies, the armies. We'll talk about them later. Let's talk about you first. And so here we are. It's kind of a similar situation here in Haggai. Their hearts are messed up, and God is moving uh, for their hearts. I think there's three things that we can see in this text, in this, in this little section. And we'll take all these little sections, which all, interestingly enough, have dates. We can actually date every one of these utterances in the next three weeks. We'll look at some more. Um, here we are in August 29th, and it's 15 weeks from here, from August 29th through the end of Haggai. First and foremost, God is protective of his glory. He says, I want you to go build this house and glorify me. I want your hearts to be after me. I want your life to be after me and my glory. I want you to find your fulfillment and joy in me and not stuff. God is protective of his glory. It is true for our own lives. He wants you to find your ultimate satisfaction in his son, Jesus Christ. That is the point of your life. That is how we glorify Jesus, by enjoying him more than anything and writing absolutely everything we have up onto his glory. That is the point of your life and what God wants out of your life. And he is faithful to answer the prayer when you say, God, I want to glorify you with everything I got. Help me to do that. Help me to do that thing. He is willing to go to great lengths in these people's lives to knock the idols out of their hands so they will glorify him. In Ezekiel 14, he'll go so far to say, we're not talking about the armies, we're talking about you. Because the good news, the gospel, is we've been saved from our idols. We've been saved from finding our satisfaction in other things. We've been saved to finding our satisfaction in Jesus who died for us, who rose for us, and who has liberated us. Live in it. God is concerned, secondly, God is concerned with our hearts. Okay. You know, you can say, well, but I did all the right stuff. God says, maybe you didn't do the right stuff for me. But, but I, I put food on the table. I showed up to church. Sermon on the Mount, right? I never knew you. You didn't do it for me. Your heart wasn't for me. Your heart was for you on some level for some thing. I mean, we're kind of coming into a time, at least in Seattle, here and now, where, you know, coming to church and saying you're a Christian is a little less uh, lucrative than it's been in the past. You can't just say I'm a Christian and get, like, plumbing jobs or whatever. If, you know, you're a plumber. Uh, if you say you're a Christian and get plumbing jobs and you're not a plumber, we're all in trouble. But there it is. Right? God's concerned with our hearts that our hearts are after Jesus. Uh, David and Saul, they both do some nasty stuff, but David was a man after God's own heart. He's repentant about the nasty stuff he does, and he pursues God. God's concerned with our hearts, not just our actions. It's not just what we do. It's not just what we say. It's the reasons we say. It's the, it's the, the heart, the seat of the human person, the very core of your being, why you operate, the motivation for why you're rolling. And God will go to great lengths because Jesus didn't just come to die to set us free for behavior. He came to give us new hearts, clean hearts, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for him. And finally, we need to keep in mind and always remember, God is omnicapable. God is capable of working things out. We always pass God's better plan. Well, God, if you do the thing where I win the lotto and have the thing and the other thing and everything is nice and peachy and clean and clear, no problems, I like that plan, God. Let's do that plan. 
God's actually omnicapable of working on the brambles and the confusion and the storms of our life, both for his glory and for our joy, so that we love him and love others more. Uh, and he's not just working today, which is not actually August 29th, but this day in June in 2016, in your life, not just for how you're going to be today or how you're going to be tomorrow, but how you're going to be for eternity with Jesus. God is actually preparing us for eternity. This is the good news of the gospel. You're not just saved now from your sin. You're saved forever for your sin. Eternal life is both qualitative and quantitative. You've been changed to be a new person with Jesus forever. And he's omnicapable of working out all the hardships and all the strife and all the difficulties in your life and in my life and in the life of this church for his glory. That's what he's doing. Because he loves you if you're a Christian. He loves you. And he's working it all out. And sometimes we can't even see. Why did you blow it away? Well, we can look at it now because we have it. But I could imagine being someone here on the 29th of August and being, I don't have enough food today. Why is the food gone? <laughs> you, you blew it away. What do you mean you blew it away? And you realize, oh, I, I, yeah, I want you. I want you to have my heart, Jesus. And I want that for me. If you don't know Jesus, you have these hearts that are so hungry for all these other things in the world. There's only one place we find satisfaction. There's only one place you're going to find satisfaction. It's the person of Jesus. Jesus came and lived and died and is omnicapable of working your life to reveal himself to you so that you would know him, love him, and serve him. Uh, we don't wait. Like the text, today is the day. Right? Today we do those things. If you feel Jesus calling, if you see the truth of the gospel, repent and believe today. Today is the day. Um, if you are a Christian, how's the course going? Consider your hearts. Uh, are you being drawn closer to or further from Jesus in your life and the things you are doing? Uh, are you being slack in the freedom that he's actually given you? Are you being slack in taking advantage of the freedom he's actually procured for you? He set these people free to go home. He set you free to live for him. That's a good thing. That's a, a gift. Does your course need to be corrected? Are you off? Do you need to return to him? The good news about that is that because we have Jesus, all who draw near to me, I will draw near to them. James makes it as a promise. Or God, pardon me. All who draw near to God, God will draw near to them. This is a promise. You can course correct right now. You, you can steer the ship back towards Jesus. You, it's called repentance. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus I would just urge you, if you're on the course, if you know, and especially if you can see down the distance, it takes a long time to build a temple, right? If you see a place that God is leading you down in the distance, if you can see it, you've turned from your sin, you know what he wants you to do, or you just see him and you just want to be closer to him, what do you have to do today to take that first step to do the things that you're actually doing to walk in the repentance that you've been given by him? I'm going to pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll sing some songs and take communion. King Jesus, I just pray for us. Lord God, the heart is a tricky, even deceitful thing. First um, John tells us we can be self-deceived. We can actually fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing what we ought to do or, or that we're living the way we're supposed to live. I just pray you give us clarity and illumination through your word and through your church and, and through, through our day and by the power of the Spirit, God, that we would have clarity 
on the things that we're supposed to do. Not necessarily that you give us the blueprint from now uh, for the rest of our lives, but that we would know today and tomorrow the steps we need to take to follow you, to love you, and to enjoy you, and to serve you uh, better and better and better and clearer and clearer. Our hearts are to glorify you, Lord. I pray you'd take the things in our lives that are a distraction, that are taking us away from that love of you, that you would, I ask you, take those things away. I pray for the things that just need to be reformed in our lives, that you'd change them, that, that we would use them once again for your glory. I pray that we would understand with such clarity that you've set us free for freedom and that we would live in and enjoy that freedom for your glory and for our joy. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, in a moment, Conrad will come back up and we'll sing songs to Jesus. We'll respond uh, to the good news of our omnicompetent God. Uh, when we do that, we'll take communion together. This is for Christians. If you're a Christian, this is for you. Uh, even if today you became a Christian. Uh, logistically, what we have, we have bread on the far side, gluten-free in the middle, and juice and wine according to your conscience. This is a victory table. We take this meal in remembrance that Jesus Christ bled and died to save us from our sin and to make us right, to cleanse us from our iniquities and to make us his people. So we, when we do this, we, we, we do what Paul urges us to do in 1 Corinthians. We consider our sin, consider where you're off course, consider where you're loving something other than Jesus. We repent, we turn from that, we draw near to God, and, and we know that the good news is we don't have to do some kind of penance. We repent, we turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus. And so when we come to take this, we come to take this as blood-bought, forgiven people loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're ready, we're going to respond to the good news of Him by taking communion together, by standing up and singing and celebrating and uh, worshiping our God. Thank you.